Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Well, thank you, uh, Christine, very much indeed for that very kind introduction. I was actually at a conference not too long ago when um, one of the speakers began by saying, as I don't know many of you here, I I asked for a list of you all broken down by age and sex. He said, but as I look at you now, I can see that most of you have been broken down by age and by sex. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't uh, dream of using that with you. However, the person I want to focus on at this talk is someone for whom sex and ageing were very serious themes, Uh, so perhaps I should have. I'm here to briefly look at John Donne, uh, that kaleidoscopically colourful man who lived from 1572 to 1631. He is, as you'll know, one of the greatest poets in the English language, He was also an adventurer, a scholar, a diplomat, a preacher. He was a Catholic and then a Protestant. He was a promiscuous youth and lover of parties, uh, and later a devoted husband and father and dean of St. Paul's. And um, it's quite a thing to be a dean. As you know, as Lord Scarborough said, deans are rather like pigeons. They love to leave their mark. And he's certainly done that. Uh, As a person, John Donne was passionate, assertive, contradictory, witty, imaginative, clever. As one literary critic says of him, his brain rather went to his head. (laughs) He was uh, an exhibitionist. He was self-dramatizing. He was always displaying himself but like most exhibitionists, he had a lot of secrets. And being one of the so-called metaphysical poets, he is always looking into the human and beyond the human. And his anxieties, I think, feel very modern. Who am I? What does it mean to be alive? What is belief, faith? Do I have them? What lies beyond death? And like those metaphysical poets, he thinks in metaphors as he explores these themes that are always pushing on our lives. For me, one of his uh, great qualities is that although he is looking within and beyond, Walter de la Mer was right when he said, when you read John Donne, you never throw off the world. There's no little miracle that suddenly sorts everything out, makes you innocent again, mystically unifies you with God in some serene perfection. The world is always still there in all its complexity. And it's all too commonplace to hear about the two John Dunns, um, the young, audacious and naughty Jack Dunn and the later priestly and rather studious Dr. Dunn. That is, I think, far too simple a distinction. I prefer to say that there was a man who in his youth was excited by the nakedness of his body and who towards the end of his life rather feared the nakedness of his soul. Even that, though, I think is far too neat. As he wrote of himself, ah, to vex me, Contras meet in one. And those contras, in large part, stayed with him. And he remains popular, I suspect, because he isn't alone in that. He refers in uh, one of his poems to that subtle knot that makes us man. That subtle knot. Now, you might know that when he was very ill towards the end of his life, he asked Nicholas Stone to come and draw him. Fires were lit in the study, he took off his clothes, and he wrapped himself in white sheets like a burial shroud with only his very emaciated face showing. 
and Nicholas Stone made a sketch and then got to work creating a sculpture from it, an effigy in which the shrouded dun is seen rising out of his funeral urn at the end of his life. And uh, I don't know, but when I look at it, I always think there's a slight contented smile on his face as if he did manage it after all. And the reason I mention that is that when the great fire burned down uh, St. Paul's, that effigy, which was in the cathedral, remarkably survived. And you can see it now in the Dean's Isle. Virginia Woolf was fascinated by that effigy's survival, and she wrote this. We will still seek out Dunn, even if we cannot see how so many different qualities meet together in one man. But we only have to read him, to submit to the sound of that passionate and penetrating voice, and his figure rises again across the waste of the years, more erect, more imperious, more inscrutable than any of his time. Even the elements seem to have respected that identity when the fire of London destroyed almost every other monument in St. Paul's it left Dunn's figure untouched, as if the flames themselves found that knot too hard to undo, that riddle too difficult to read, and that figure almost too entirely itself to turn to common clay. Well, perhaps this is a moment to hear that voice. Death, be not proud. Though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure. Then from thee much more must flow and soonest our best men with thee do go. Rest of their bones and souls delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well, and better than thy stroke. Why? Swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. I've named this talk using the beginning of another of his holy sonnets. What if this present were the world's last night? Mark in my heart, O soul, where thou dost dwell. What if today was the end of the world and we faced our judgment? Who are we? Where are we? Who have we become? What will be on display when we and our priorities and the ways we lived our life and treated each other as well as our planet are all laid bare? What if this present were the world's last night? Mark in my heart, O soul, where thou dost dwell. Well, that seems a suitably Lenten question, but also a perennial one for the Christian and for the community of Christian faith. I don't know how you would begin to answer that question. I guess we'd all be facing a lot of those contraries again as we try to prise off our masks and cast down our silly paper crowns. But I wanted in this time to reflect just a little by way of John Donne as to what the Christian community would want to be able to say about itself, its life and its vision and its hopes, as we stood together, unclothed as it were, before our God on that day, when the last Synod microphone is switched off. The last cathedral procession has conked out. 
I worked in St. Paul's Cathedral for eight years. I discovered very quickly that to say after you is an insult in the Christian church. <laughs> if you're more important, you're at the back. <laughs> when all the vestments have been packed away, when the purple has faded from the shirts and all the lights go on, what, O oh church, what is marked in your heart? Where does your soul dwell? So let me first digress a bit. In the 1980s, before the fall of the USSR, the Czechoslovakian playwright Václav Havel found himself in prison for criticizing the regime. When the regime fell and democratic elections were held, he was unexpectedly elected the first president of the newly formed republic while he was still in prison. When he was finally released and took office, he was hit by an attack of self-doubt and writer's block. He had known what to say as a critic, but no idea what to say as a president. As a result, he fell into a very deep depression, and several years later, he wrote a book about this period of his life, Largo Desolato. In the play, which is the book, his protagonist is telling his literary agent that he doesn't know who he is anymore, and that he hasn't anything left to say. When the doorbell goes, and one of his fans is there, saying that she recently finished reading one of his books, and when she looked up from her book on the bus, she looked around and everybody seemed to be glowing. How do you do that, she said to him. He replied, you have just given me the greatest compliment any reader can give to a writer. You have asked me to explain to you the meaning of life. But the meaning of life is not like an answer to a question you hear once and remember for the rest of your life. It's more like a house that you live in. Unfortunately, I don't live in that house any longer, but I can tell by your question that you do. So why don't you come in and we can talk and maybe you can show me the way back to the house of meaning. Let's just for a minute hold that image of the house of meaning, because landscape is the theme of this festival, and there is the inner landscape, and it's a vital part of this house of meaning. When John Donne died in 1631, survived, by the way, by six of his 12 children, he had known a lot of bereavement in his life, he was famous, oh yes, but not as a poet, he was famous as a preacher. We have around 160 of his sermons from 1616 to 1631, which we can all read today. And you'll quickly see, if you do, that sermons in Dunn's day were rather different from a quick 10 minutes from behind a lectern that looks like a posh deck chair. <laughs> a Dunn sermon is on average about 20 pages long, and it needs about an hour to deliver, on special occasions, about two hours. They were also preached from memory, and not from a text. So as soon as he had finished his sermon on Sunday evening, he would be writing and then memorizing his sermon for the next time. Dunn tells us, actually, he usually spent an hour before preaching at court collecting my thoughts. So this would have been literally collecting his thoughts ready from memory to preach the sermon. It was, I think, the sermons then were the sort of social media of the day. There was no Emmerdale to go home to afterwards, so you had the time. Uh, and these were uh, talkative uh, issues that he was mentioning, uh, and people would uh, talk about the sermons for the rest of the week afterwards. Sermons weren't knocked up on a stressed-out Saturday on a few index cards. They were composed following the classical rules of oratory and rhetoric, which had been handed down from ancient Rome. I won't take you all through these now, but one of the ways in which preachers helped remember that sermon was to follow the classical training of imagining a spatial version of your speech, usually a building, with the various rooms in it containing the various parts of the oration. 
through which the speaker would imagine himself proceeding in order. And Dunn seems to have been very fond of this device. He often mentions it in his sermons. So he likens a sermon at one place to a goodly palace through which he's going to take his listeners. Together, he says, in a sermon he wrote on prayer, they will rest a little, as in an outward court, upon consideration of prayer in general, and then draw near the view of the palace in a second court to consider the Lord's Prayer, and then pass through the chiefest rooms of the palace containing four arguments about how to pray before finally going into the back of the palace to refute objections to those arguments. So here was the spatial journey that he was taking in order to remember the sermon for you to listen to. And as Peter McCulloch, who's one of the great editors today of Dunn's sermon, says, in sonnets, Dunn built pretty rooms. It comes from one of his poems, Canonization. <laughs> but in sermons, he built palaces. So these might be house of meaning for us, houses of meaning we are invited into to see whether we might make home there. And uh, with that image, I'm often reminded of Michael Longley, the poet, who was asked once, you know, where do, you, where do all your poems come from? And he said, if I knew where poems came from, I'd go and live there. And I think Dunn is very much setting out in these rooms that he's taking you into. He's sort of asking, inviting you, persuading you that you might want to come and make home here in, in this faith. In one sermon, he writes, religion is not a melancholy. The spirit of God is not a damp. The church is not a grave. It is a fold. It is an ark. It is a net. It is a city. It is a kingdom. Not only a house, but a house that hath many mansions in it. And I, I often think that some preachers can talk as if they're speaking from God. Some preachers are speaking as if they are of God. Dan, I think, is constantly speaking towards God, persuading you uh, to come this way through the palace. Mark in my heart, O soul, where thou dost dwell. Dunn's sermon set out to influence the listener, moving, and, and by the way, literally moving. Uh, we have uh, quite a few descriptions of how preachers of the time, including Dunn, literally moved with the body, uh, with particular expressions of face and arm. Again, very classical. You remember when they killed Cicero, they sliced out his tongue and his arms because that's where his power of oratory lay. Uh, so he was literally moving in that pulpit with no microphone. And very much, I think, in the image of R.S. Thomas, you know, these words were directed towards the intellect by way of the heart. Dunn preached in long sweeps, large dramatic canvases, and he's very creative, by the way, with non-biblical sources as well as with biblical and he rather sets himself apart from many of his contemporaries of the day with lots of illustrations from contemporary science, from philosophy and music, politics, anecdotes from experience. Now, some are rather critical of uh, his sermons. T.S. Eliot, who I think you know, is, is largely um, acclaimed to be one of the people who resuscitated Dunn's reputation, um, nevertheless, he was rather critical of Dunn's sermons T.S. Eliot wrote this. About done, there hangs the shadow of the impure motive. And impure motives lend their aid to a facile success. He is a little of the religious spellbinder, the Reverend Billy Sunday of his time, the flesh creeper, the sorcerer of emotional orgy. Dunn had a trained mind but without belittling the intensity or profundity of his experience, we can suggest that this experience was not perfectly controlled and that he lacked spiritual discipline. I always feel that tells you rather more about T.S. Eliot <laughs> than about Dunn. On the other hand, here's Dunn's first biographer, Isaac Walton, painting a picture 
for us of Dunn the Preacher. A preacher in earnest, weeping, sometimes for his listeners, sometimes with them, always preaching to himself like an angel from a cloud, but in none, carrying some, as St. Paul was, to heaven in holy raptures and enticing others by a sacred art and courtship to amend their lives. Here picturing vice so as to make it ugly to those that practiced it, and a virtue so as to make it beloved even by those that loved it not. And all this with a most particular grace and an unexpressible addition of comeliness. Preachers out there, are your sermons comely? <laughs> if this today could be interpreted as him being unable again to escape his own drama, I think instead it's him following those classical rules of oration and believing, as he says elsewhere, that on a huge hill, cragged and steep, truth stands, and he that will reach her about must and about must go. He also declares in another place that a sermon intends a holy stirring of religious affections, a stirring, a holy stirring. And he does this by weaving his text out of a text. And here's a very nice anniversary example, one of which I'm hugely proud of having discovered for you. Exactly 400 years ago, on the first Friday of Lent in 1623, Dunn stepped into the pulpit at Whitehall Palace, probably the outdoor pulpit which, like Paul's Cross, accommodated thousands of people from every rank in society, to give one of the three Lent sermons sponsored by the king. Sermons always began, um, so as they would climb up, so the congregation would all settle, putting down the sheets and their hats and ready, and then the text would be read, and Dunn simply said, Jesus wept. Now the congregation then presumably wondered how he was going to get an hour out of that. <laughs> what he does is use it through the sermon as a refrain, making the hearer understand what makes Jesus weep, how we make him weep. He notes how Christ wept thrice in the gospel for Lazarus, for Jerusalem, and at his passion. He shows then how those tears were shed for an individual, for a nation, and finally for humanity. The tears, he continues, were humane, prophetic, and sacrificial. And each then gets this symbolic metaphor. The tears were a spring, a river, and the sea. And he ends... Because the spring flows into the river, and the river into the sea, and that wheresoever we find that Jesus wept, we find our text. We shall look upon those lovely, those heavenly eyes through this glass of his own tears, for so often Jesus wept. Wheresoever we find that Jesus wept, we find our text. So let's go back then to that question from his sonnet. What if this present were the world's last night? Mark in my heart, O soul, where thou dost dwell. And let's face the question as a Christian community as to what we will say when asked who we are, how we've lived and loved, who we've helped or hurt, what our passion and what our prejudice was. Because, let's face it, we know, first of all, that the church, as the community of Christian faith, has undeniably made Christ weep. There has been too much blood spilled, too much abuse, too much hate, too much bureaucracy, too much of the wrong sort of ambition, important looks on unimportant faces, too much discrimination, and too much insipid faith, narcissistic behaviour, and manipulative certainty and above all, too little love, all making the church 
a very long way from Nazareth. And wheresoever we find that Jesus wept, we find our text. That call back to sanity and to goodness that both Christ and the scriptures embody. So we might, as we reflect on this, even recite Dunn's hymn to God the Father that plays and prays with his own name, but also with his need. Here it is. Wilt thou forgive that sin where I begun, which was my sin, though it were done before? Wilt thou forgive that sin which through which I run and do run still, though still I do deplore? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Wilt thou forgive that sin which I have won others to sin and made my sin their door? Wilt thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two but wallowed in a score? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. I have a sin of fear that when I have spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. But swear by thyself that at my death thy sun shall shine as he shines now and heretofore. And having done that, thou hast done. I fear no more. Of course, it's a lovely play on his own name, uh, Dunn. It's also a play on his wife's name, who is called Anne Moore. So thou hast done. Uh, no, I, I have more. So it's sort of a play with both of their names. He got into a lot of trouble, um, uh, as, you, as you might know, for marrying uh, his boss's niece uh, on the quiet. Uh, she was only uh, 17. And that really put Dunn out of courtly favour, put him in prison, actually. But he put him out of courtly favour for a good period of his early life, which actually, getting ordained, uh, started to bring him back onto the social ladder. But uh, it's a very beautiful part of saying, actually, he has more in his life through and more. So let's imagine that church shivering there on Judgment Day, naked and confused, also voicing the truth that at our best, we were not trying to be the answer for questions that people often were rarely asking but instead were trying to be that house of meaning in a world that is afraid there is no such thing. A world that is suspicious that we are purposeless and an accidental species in an indifferent universe. But we were trying, we might say, to put stones together to shape an imaginative place to ramble in with your mind and heart and come across some rooms to converse and meet in, rest and recreate in, rooms to be nourished or washed in, Eucharistic and baptismal places, places to plant seeds and nurture, rooms to compose and be creative in, spaces to dream and lay down in a little bit of peace in. And in the stones of this house that we were trying to build as a church, our horizons somehow came into view. And we tried hard, we might continue to say, to build it on the chief cornerstone, the one who had lovingly shown us the directions to this house of meaning in a kingdom he said was far off and yet within. And if we on that world's last night find ourselves saying that so many of us, though very flawed and faulty and hiding big dollops of doubt, nevertheless committed ourselves to this house, sharing it, believing it as having a dignity that the world deserves, worthy of some kindness, and we built it to invite a life into it from beyond our self-observations, a breeze of spirit through our open windows to wake us up. Then, as we try to say that this house of meaning was our desire, if not always our achievement, we might look 
might look be upon with a bit of mercy. But of course only if we use that house to warm and repair the least of his brothers and sisters and treat them as himself. What if this present were the world's last night? So if any of that imaginative exercise has any resonance, if we as a church have got a lot so badly wrong and yet do still have something to offer the world, what uh, you know, very learned uh, ecclesiologists call a soap dish ecclesiology, pretty mucky and horrible to hold, but you know, it's still containing something of value, then what lessons for this house, what home rules in this house of meaning might we learn from John Donne today as to how to get our house in a little bit of better order. Now, if it were George Herbert, we would be learning again that love is the only lesson to learn in this house of meaning. Love is the only metaphor worth pursuing when it comes to God, because where God is, love is, and where love is, God is. And when he sent his poems off to Nicholas Ferrer as he was dying and asked him to take a look at them, He'd placed them in a very careful and deliberate order, and the last poem Herbert placed was called Love, because for the Christian, it always has to be the last word. And it was a poem that even dared not to use the word God in it, but instead simply refers to the love who bade me welcome, though my soul drew back. Herbert agreed with St. John of the Cross, that in the evening of life, we will be judged on our love alone. So that's a good lesson for the church and every day. Our community is never to be an example of power, but rather reveal the power of example. The house of meaning is built to explore both humanity's loving search for God and God's searching love for us. As Pope Francis said, truth may be vital but without love, it is unbearable. The love of truth leads to the truth of love. So that's Herbert, priest and poet, whose mother, by the way, was a friend to John Donne. Donne preached at her funeral in Chelsea. It's a wonderful image, that is, Donne preaching at George Herbert's mother's funeral. But what might Donne be reminding of, of? If that was Herbert, what would Donne be saying? What house rules would he want us to have? Well, I first of all have a suspicion he'd quite approve of this exercise of some scrutiny of us in the light of our judgment because actually he was rather into that theme. You might remember he wrote this. All mankind is one volume. When one man dies, one chapter is torn out of the book and translated into a better language. And every chapter must be so translated. God employs several translators. Some pieces are translated by age, some by sickness, some by war, some by justice, but God's hand shall bind up all our scattered leaves again for that library where every book shall lie open to another. As Christians, we must at the last lie open to one another. Be open books, be easily read. So his house rules would no doubt aim to get us primed for this, to get us into the habit of that openness now. And he thought the preacher should be helping some self-recognition about who we have become and are. He writes that the preacher speaks to my conscience as though he had been behind the hangings when I sinned and as though he had read the book of the Day of Judgment already. And in a similar image, he says, it is not the depth, nor the wit, nor the eloquence of the preacher that pierces us. It is the preacher's nearness. Now, it's that word, nearness, that I think he would want to bring into our room. Nearness. It's an important insight that it's not our clever ideas, our histrionics, our smooth rhetoric that as a preacher or as a Christian will make people tune in. It is my nearness. How near does my humanity feel to yours? Can people sense that we are in the same world? 
might this person be worthy of some trust? Because even if I don't understand this faith, it's sort of in the air that it understands me. This commitment to nearness means resisting soundbite theology, any quick clarity or easy answer. It means resisting turning honest complexity into dishonest simplicity. It means bearing with each other, seeking to read the lines of yourself and others, so that, and this I feel might be Dunn's great contribution to us as a church, we are not charged to be relevant, but resonant. Our faith is not an opinion column, it is not a hobby, it is not the latest fad, it is seeking to address the perennial depth of what we experience as being human. Resonance happens in a deeper place than relevance. And Dunn, who refers to his riddling, perplexed, labyrinthical soul and the maze of corridors in his breast, Dunn, for whom his confusions are creative, he was truth-seeker and self-seeker, passionate lover of women and of God, ambitious but so aware of death. He was an apostate but an admired preacher. This Dunn, who uh, contraries meet him, this Dunn is bringing his fragmented, improvised soul right near to yours. Near. It is his exquisite gift in communicating his own experience that makes me certainly very grateful as a Christian 400 years later. As you read him, you feel something coming into birth in you. That defines good literature. It defines a good preacher. It certainly defines a good faith. And the lesson for the church here is to avoid what interrupts or discourages such nearness or openness and willingness to say, I'm like this. Are you? It means synod debates and PCCs and sermons and church statements and Bible study and pastoral ministry and ministry alongside the vulnerable and running food banks and children's work and school work and sheltering the homeless and liturgy and weddings and funerals and confession and anointing and the whole enterprise and adventure of being a community of faith should be built on nearness to the human heart. Not abstracting, separating, pointing away, but showing, bridging, pointing in. Dunn writes, Go thou to heaven in a humble thankfulness to God, and holy cheerfulness in that way that God hath manifested to thee, and do not pronounce too bitterly, too desperately, that every man is an error that thinks not just as thou thinkest or in no way that is not in thy way, Christ is come to call all sinners, only sinners. I doubt not of mine own salvation, and in whom can I have so much occasion of doubt as in myself? When I come to heaven, shall I be able to say to any there, Lord, how got you hither? <laughs> was any less likely to come hither than I. Peter McCulloch draws our attention to how Dunn tried to bring the gospel near by pointing to that sermon on Jesus' tears. Dunn ends it by quoting that triumphant and hopeful revelation, the Lord shall wipe all tears from thine eyes. But actually, that isn't a direct quote. Revelation actually says, the Lord will wipe all tears from their eyes. And Dunn changes there for thine. So it's your eyes. His preaching is not in the abstract, but for you. It's your eyes. Again, he was bringing the scriptures near. So I think in Dunn, a proud humanity, of which he was very much part and would admit that, can only be saved by a humble God. And drawing nearer to that God means drawing nearer to a humility about yourself and a willingness to be honest with another so that I can then draw nearer to them too. No one understood the changing moods and rhythms of life more than he. 
but he was able to point beyond all contrasts and contradictions to that final destiny, quote, where there shall be no cloud nor sun, no darkness, no dazzling, but one equal light, no noise nor silence, but one equal music, no fears, no hopes, but one equal possession, no foes nor friends, but one equal communion and identity, no ends nor beginnings, but one equal eternity. What if the church tried to live in preparation for that one equal eternity here and now? And to do that, he believed every person of faith needed to dare a little bit more nearness. I have one more house rule that I think Dunn might encourage us to take seriously. Rupert Brooke saw Dunn as the one great lover poet who was not afraid to acknowledge that he was composed of body, soul, and mind, and one who faithfully recorded all the pitched battles, alarms, treaties, sieges, and fanfares of that triangular warfare. You know, body, soul, and mind constantly on the battlefield with each other. He does that, as I say, to get near to himself and to us in hope of the mercy and nearness of God. But how he does that? How he does that is through use of language. Dunn had many abilities, that's in no doubt, but his principal talent was linguistic. Language was life. It was his static energy. It enabled his poetry. I'm sure it enabled his sexual conquests. It enabled his friendships, his sermons, his prayers, and that nearness. The flow of words is a testimony to life for him. In fact, in one sermon he writes, in bodily, so in spiritual diseases, it is a desperate state to be speechless. Trying, though, to find a vocabulary for the soul is a tricky call. Dunn's sexual and his spiritual energies, his perplexed in his pastoral heart, his longing for the immortal in a time that wastes us all away, all provoke the most poignant and memorable phrases that I so often come back to, in my own preaching, as I, uh, my own way, try to scratch faith into the glass that's been handed to me, as all preachers try to do. So as we draw to the close here, let's just listen to Dunn using language in service of the soul. And remember his words that God made us with his word, and with our words we make God. God made sun and moon to distinguish seasons and day and night and we cannot have the fruits of the earth but in their seasons. But God hath made no decree to distinguish the seasons of his mercies. In paradise the fruits were ripe the first minute and in heaven it is always autumn. His mercies are ever in their maturity. He brought light out of darkness, not out of a lesser light. He can bring thy summer out of winter, though thou have no spring. Though in the ways of fortune or understanding or conscience, thou have been benighted till now, wintered, frozen, clouded, eclipsed, damped, benumbed, smothered and stupefied, till now, now God comes to thee not as in the dawning of the day, not as in the bud in the spring, but as the sun at noon to illustrate all shadows as the sheaves in harvest, to fill all penuries. All occasions invite his mercies and all times are his seasons. Whom God loves, he loves to the end. And not only to their own end, to their death, but to his end. And his end is that he might love them still. My God, my God, thou art a direct God. May I not say a literal God, a God that wouldst be understood literally and according to the plain sense of all that thou sayest, but thou art also 
a figurative God, a metaphorical God, a God in whose words there is such a height of figures, such voyages, peregrinations to fetch remote and precious metaphors, such extensions, spreadings, such curtains of allegories, such third heavens of hyperboles, so harmonious elocutions, so retired and so reserved expressions, so commanding persuasions, so persuading commandments, such sinews even in thy milk, and such things in thy words, as all profane authors seem of the seed of the serpent that creeps. Thou art the dove that flies. So there are one or two examples of his language in preaching. He says, bless, praise, and speak. There is your duty. And we know his ability with it in his poems. And his lesson to today's community of faith, it seems to me, is not to imitate him. We can't do that. But we can, like him, take language seriously, treat it as sacramental, use it, explore it, shape it, take it to the gym to bring the human heart nearer to bring God nearer, to bring yourself nearer. This means not buying in to any language in the church that has started to sound as if we are running Toyota. <laughs> not being content with a tribal, narcissistic, self-referential or congratulatory language that we use to fit in the club or tick to make us somehow acceptable. It means despairing when the bland is leading the bland. <laughs> and when our words seem paralyzed or cliched or dead in the water, instead of being restless and searching and pining for the mystery of God. It means excavating words for that resonance, getting beyond what we're good at, so that the world that currently has a religious language that's either faint, fractured, or forgotten, or never known, we can somehow reclaim a language that feels near again. So in all those facets of our church life that I mentioned just now, the need for a carefulness, a reverence, and an imagination with our words. It doesn't mean we have to be dumb, great wordsmith or poet, or a clever literary critic. But it does mean striking out the cliche that doesn't resonate, avoiding a language in which you cannot hear the love between the lines and distrusting any words that close down rather than open life. That's his phrase, by the way. He write, writes a little poem to somebody who just got ordained, and he said, you're now an ambassador for God, there to open life. So my time's ended. In summary, it's always a bit odd to transfer someone 400 years ago into your own day, and somewhat artificial. The past is a foreign country and all that. Nevertheless, Dunn took judgment seriously. I think he thought it would be a liberation. At last, everything he'd tried to voice was just out there. No more masks or pretense and cover-up, just him and love looking at him. And that imaginative exercise of wondering how we as a church and as 21st century Christians will be seen when that light is thrown on us is one I think Dunn would have smiled at. He did it a lot in his own inimitable way. I don't want to draw lots of lessons that falsely try and make his time our time, but I do believe that John Donne reminds us and teaches us and encourages us to make sure the rooms of our meaning are furnished with the desire to be near and a desire to touch through language. I don't have an 18-point program for renewing the church. I do not have a diocesan campaign of renewing your mission statement or getting a new big idea with a nice strapline that will transform society through a bumper sticker. All I hope is that in the spirit of done, the church of today and tomorrow will do it all it can to shape and speak a language, not just in sermons, but in life, that draws the heart nearer draws through its beauty, truthfulness, and its provocation. And when those bleatings of sheep and goats are dangerously on the horizon, we should be asking ourselves how near we were to the people we were called to serve. 
Dan asks in his prayer to God in sickness, as he looked, I think, to the distant landscape. Since I am coming to that holy room, where with thy choir of saints forevermore, I shall be made thy music. As I come, I tune the instrument here at the door, and what I must do then, think here before. And it ends. We think that paradise and Calvary, Christ's cross and Adam's tree, stood in one place. Look, Lord, and find both Adams met in me. As the first Adam's sweat surrounds my face, may the last Adam's blood my soul embrace. So in his purple wrapped, receive me, Lord. By these his thorns, give me his other crown. And as to other souls, I preached thy word. Be this my text, my sermon to mine own. Therefore that he may raise, the Lord throws down. So this is done needing to be rescued and saved. He has taught me that God has a magnetism of mystery. And he is in this world as poetry is in the poem, and that a life can be worse spent than pursuing the footfalls of that truth. By seeking a language and a faith that is with God, beyond, within, and very much alongside, a language that has a nearness and a beauty and recognitions of the human heart. Thank you. listening to this week's episode of the church times podcast you can find more news analysis comment and book reviews on our website churchtimes.co.uk if you are not yet a subscriber to the church times you can try your first 10 issues for just 10 pounds you'll get the paper delivered to your door every friday plus full access to our website and digital archive go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more